Hello and welcome to Twin Peaks The Return, our discussion of part five of the TV series. I'm Andy Hazel. I am Hayley Inch. And joining us as a special guest today is script editor and screenwriter and Lynch scholar Donovan Wren. Donovan, welcome. Hello. <laughs> so um, we'll begin this discussion by, well, first of all, celebrating its weekly um, instalment. Which we're now getting, rather than having a, four dumped on us and then a couple of weeks to digest them. And then panicking wildly about recording enough podcast episodes before the next episode <laughs> is about to drop. Oh, God, no flashbacks already. Um, so we're going to uh, touch on the show this time by talking about it location by location, and this uh, particular part begins in the location of Las Vegas, which is unusual, I think. Yes, skylines of Vegas, so much neon, yeah. and surprisingly, even though we've seen this type of image of Las Vegas so many times, again, with all of Lynch's cityscaping, it feels very different, it feels very simultaneously fresh and yet threatening. Yeah, we spend a lot of time in Vegas in this particular episode. The Stan synopsis of Part 5 is literally just case files. Nice. Um, this on IMDb, they're saying Coop is still trapped as Dougie, going through the motions, as his doppelganger schemes in jail. Meanwhile, new information on Major Garland Briggs turns up. See, the fact that they earmark it as important is just mm. kind of like, oh, shit, we do have to pay attention to this. I don't want to have to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we open with the sounds of Johnny Jewell's um, song Windswept um, and scene of some hitmen in a car getting instructions from a woman who is very stressed. Extremely stressed. I really love how Lynch's camera will, like, sometimes slowly zero in on characters accompanied to often very loud vibrating music and ends up increasing our claustrophobia and, and unease in mm -hmm. that now we're way more stressed about this scene than we may have been otherwise. Yes, yeah. I actually don't remember this scene at all. I remember the episode starting with a good coop being dragged out of the house and pushed into the car to go to work. Mm, that comes right on the heels of this. Thing. That really seems to dominate the whole episode yes. for me, so I don't remember what happened before that. That's, that's probably fair because I think most people are... In, in terms of storylines that we've all been introduced to so far, we all just want to know what's happening with Coop. Mm. Yeah, so this is like a very much a background story, it seems, although it seems to take on a increasing re um, resonance by the episode, oh, sorry, the part's end. The hitmen are disgruntled. Um, the woman who's in charge of them is very angry that uh, they haven't been able to fulfil their duty, and she types the word argent into a Blackberry, and then some lights flash um, in a red in a black box that's sitting in a wooden dish in a place that we later discover is in Buenos Aires. Any ideas what's going on here? No, because we've been given so little information about it. I don't even want to talk about it because there's nothing to talk about it yet. It's it's like Dr. Jacoby and his shovels, <laughs> you know, yeah. which previously before this episode, we had no idea what the hell was going on with them. And then there was a ginormous payoff on that. <laughs> so these kind of weird little incidental scenes, I find myself just letting them happen. Yeah. And I just basically sit and wait to have more contextual information on yeah. them. Yeah, like the beeping box. That's the only part of that I do remember because it was there was a callback to it at the end. It was finally, oh, there's something to connect it to. Yeah. But we have a very interesting connection via this box now because the second mm. person to trigger those red red lights is Doppelcoop through a phone call that he he makes from the prison, which we'll get onto later on. But his transformation into a piece of what I think is silver. At first when I saw this transformation of the, the black box of the red lights, 
I thought, oh, it looks like a used bullet or something. But then she types in the word Argent, which means silver in Spanish. There's an awful lot of silver imagery. There's a silver Mustang. There's the silver state, which is Nevada. There's also a manner of other uses of the term silver. And so for it to turn into this tiny little nugget, I think it was something that I agree. Well, I'm gonna have to wait to see what it all means, but it's quite intriguing. I, d- I didn't think that it, I didn't think of it being silver. I just thought, oh, it's turned into a rock, and it's not David Bowie as Philip Jeffries, and I'm very disappointed. <laughs> I'm sure you weren't alone there. <laughs> Does anyone else have anything to say about these particular scenes? And this? No, move on. Okay, so we go to Good Coop. He's uh, in his house in Vegas. Mm. And being barreled into into a vehicle. Um, Dougie's life really continues to just be this real ill-fitting thing to coop the the scene that really struck me and it was basically the beginning of the end in terms of my emotional overload with this episode dougie's son sunny jim is sitting in the back of the big car and just the sight of him just seems to spark this kind of ineffable emotion in Coop that results in the single perfect tear rolling yeah. down Carl McLaughlin's face. And I I was broken from then on in, to be perfectly frank yeah. with everybody. Mm-hmm. I, I, I didn't get that feeling from it, but I'm really interested in that moment because I think that shot of the kid in the car is the first new music by Angelo Badalamenti we've had. It's this sort of sad electronica sound and I wasn't sure why or what it was trying to tell us it just has this emotional effect mm, it really does yeah. it's the first time we've had it in five episodes yeah it's an interesting deployment of it because it seems well I mean what I took from it was that Good Cooper is struggling there's like there is the emotional core that's still there that, that this can't help but, it, but come out in this way and um, Janie's reaction to the tear mm. is um one of uh, you're having one of your moments again. Yeah, I, I think you're having one of your episodes, episodes is the line. Which, yeah, really struck me because obviously in the ways that we've seen everyone who knew Dougie interact with him, particularly later on in the episode where he goes to work, and everyone mm. definitely is clocking that he's behaving a bit weirdly, but no one's really doing anything about it. And the fact that, yes, Janie says this thing about episodes, was Dougie's behaviour all always somewhat erratic? Was he always behaving in a strange way? Where did Dougie come from? Why does he look like Cooper? Mm. I mean, I I wasn't sure if we were supposed to know that or not, or if there was some minor reference, but did Doppelcoop create him out of nothing? And if so, how long ago was that, Mm. that he has a a wife and a kid? Yeah, Mm. I, I know something interesting. I think it was reading something on the AV Club's critics wrap up where someone suggested that, um, all of these storylines that are currently happening, who's to say that all of these timelines aren't happening across a large stretch of time? (laughs) That's that's crazy talk. That's Westworld. (laughs) Spoiler alert for Westworld, which is garbage, but that same thing. Well, there are some really, really um, um, interesting things coming up, particularly in this episode where we learned that the body from the bed was did belong to Major Briggs. How is that possible? Because mm. you know he died twenty five years ago, mm. twenty six years ago. Has he been in the red room? Is he brought out of the red room? Mm. Is there some sort of way he's been in cryogenesis? There's, there's like mm. so many <laughs> things that are still yeah, unknown. Yeah, and and as we note from the scene towards the end with with Colonel Davis, Ernie Hudson represent this sort of occurrence of Major Briggs's fingerprints and supposed body parts showing up places has been happening presumably for as yes. long as this gap has been going on yeah. which is just like what the hell is going on there mm. I can't wait to have this one answered <laughs> uh, but, but yeah getting back to Dougie and Good Coop it's just so interesting 
how this episode played out with him. It's almost like a movie of its own that could it could work as a great Lynch film without any connection to Twin Peaks at all. Just this sort of innocent alien character in suburbia not knowing what to do but because everyone's lives are so tightly controlled and scheduled they have to sort of gently push him around through his day-to-day routine yeah to serve their various purposes yeah and it's just it got funnier and funnier because you even you expect someone to snap eventually like his boss and even his boss is saying uh no you have to prove yourself or i'm gonna think about firing you the only Mm -hmm. time they sort of get a bit aggressive with him is when he's blocking the way out of the lift (laughs) and they're going to be late so they have to yeah, shoving. It's it's kind of indicative of how much society in general will let a not even that successful, a vaguely successful <laughs> white man get away with shit. I don't, I don't know if it was for him. It was just that their lives couldn't admit that there was something this completely wrong in it. They had to sort of ignore that it was happening. Yeah, it kind of gets funnier and it gets it sadder down. and it gets more farcical. And the role of the statue, I think, is really fascinating in this because it mm. often, like as, as with the previous parts, in this part we're given a bunch of breadcrumbs of little moments of recognition and we're hoping that Good Cooper is eventually going to form when he hears the words agent and case files and he sees yeah. the statue. And oh, Did you write down the, th- the words that he repeated? Uh, yes. yes, so he repeated agent and case files and... And game. And game. game. That's right, and yes. this was the point in the episode where I started getting a little bit angry, I must admit, because mm-hmm. it kind of felt like getting him to fixate on these words was almost like a level of egregious fuckery with the audience. <laughs> and I know it's probably not meant that way because Lynch, I feel, rarely actually thinks about how the audience might be taking certain things. But, yeah, this was a moment where I, yeah, I started to actually have some anger burble up in me and just go, how long are you going to tease us with mm. this? And to be honest, I, I think it's going to be the whole thing. We're going to be teased no. with this through the really? whole thing. Really? No, no, no. I don't know. I think it's it's going to happen pretty soon. The, this episode ended with him staring at the statue for a really long time. And the, the shoes of the statue. And he's got to get back mm. to Twin Peaks. And like, mm. he's got to be his, his old self by then. Well, I think there are a bunch of things in play that are going to take him back there. And like the the hotel room key becomes pretty important. Oh, yeah, that's been posted off. Yes, there's um, Tam- Tamara Preston with the, with the inverted fingerprints, which we see in this part as well. Oh, is that what was going on there? Yeah, yeah we're going to get to that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so um, anyway, but I guess we should focus back on Dougie, but yes. Um, so there was an interesting point made um, that I realised with the David Bowie you mentioned earlier. Bowie's co-star in The Man Who Fell to Earth is Candy Clark, who plays the part of Frank Truman's wife in this episode. Oh. Yeah. And then in the next scene, where like, we've also got a Buenos Aires scene, which is the last place that Philip Jeffries was seen. And this statue is really, really similar to um, Bowie in around that era. So I, this, I've, I can, I've looked at the pictures. It's a stretch. Is, isn't it just that David Bowie looked like a statue because of all the drugs he was taking? Definitely possible. Yes, <laughs> yes. I would not put that past him. I mean, it's an incredibly effeminate kind of statue in a way if you're going to show a lawman asserting the law. There's some very uncanny parallels between him and Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. What? In, in, yeah. I've heard of that movie. I don't know what the reference is. Oh, well, if I, if you see some pictures of Bowie in a hat with a gun, it looks similar. It's not a copy oh, by okay, any stretch, yeah. but I think that is done knowingly. I love I love the episode ended with that rather than a scene in the roadhouse with some terrible band. It's like this endless slow series of shots of Good Coop staring at the thing sadly like he's going to remember it. Yeah, do you think this is going to have the same rewatchability as the first two seasons of Twin Peaks? Well, th- th- this episode alone I watched twice already in order to just 
prepare for the podcast. I have noticed already there are stretches of certain episodes where I get very fidgety. Mm. I get very, oh, okay, okay, wrap it up, wrap it up. And maybe that won't be so much a problem once everything is complete Mm -hmm. and you can see how everything moves in and out. In the middle of a season context, it's frustrating. Yeah, okay. I'm going to be curious to sort of watch it all as like one... 18 no, hour. I'm not going to do that. 18-hour-long <laughs> movies. <laughs> Two nine-hour movies. <laughs> but, yeah, it will definitely be very interesting. Yeah, it is. I think it's really interesting, the pacing, because there is he needs to have the banality. They have to, mm. You can't have, you know, Cooper suddenly... Pacing's good. But the problem with, like, a week between episodes is it's really hard to remember all the all the characters, all the storylines, who's who. Yeah, which is how I remember being in the 90s. Like, there was so much. Really? You had to write it down, basically, because you had 30 people introduced in the first episode of the first season, then and then you kept getting more people, then it was crazy. There was a lot of time. I mean, now it doesn't seem second nature, but... Um, while we're still in Las Vegas, we've good coop. Yes. The green tea latte, that guy. <laughs> <laughs> that might be my favourite moment of the whole episode, because... <laughs> You're not expecting him to like it. You're expecting him to spit it out, but just this look comes over his face like it's a religious experience for him. And he just starts nodding. You wouldn't expect that with Tan Lynch. No way. No. He's, you know, he's a coffee man through and through. Yeah, but... green tea latte. I, I thought that was going to be a joke. I mean, speaking, speaking of green things, the little green flicker oh, that, yes. that flits across Dougie's co-worker's face and prompts... Coop to all of a sudden burst out with he's lying, yeah. which mm. I doubt is even a micro sentence he even understands. Yeah, I don't it think just heard impulsively it. pops out from him. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, it's similar to the green light that you see in the well, oh. in another Vegas scene when they're watching Cooper say hello to the poker machine. In I didn't notice that. Yeah, it's a little green light there, but it's, for some reason, it wasn't there the first time around. You no, know, no, it was a sort of little flickering red and black and white. Thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, if you go back and watch it, there's a little, just a, okay. a very short green uh, beam of light. Yeah, green. So, yeah, there's the green tea latte, there's the green <laughs> flicker, and he's wearing a green jacket. Green tea ring for the hotel room. Mm. Which, yeah, as, as as we've pointed out in previous episodes, green seems to be very tightly bound. Yes, green peaks. Interestingly yeah. deployed. So I think this is one of the very few occasions in which Good Cooper actually volunteers a phrase that he hasn't heard. So there was the time when he was in the car with Jade, where he says, mm. Jade, two rides. And then there's high when he got the co- when he drank the coffee. And then there's this moment. He's, He's lying. He's lying. Yeah. <laughs> um, interesting to note that Bushmill Mullins, who's his manager, is a... Is that the character name or the actor? There's the name on the door of the office. Bushmill Mullins. <laughs> and it, it reminded me a little bit of the only TV show Lynch has said that he's enjoyed watching, which is Mad Men. And he had the big poster of him as an ex- ex-boxer in the background mm. and on his wall, which I thought was an interesting touch. Yeah, Cooper uh, wants to urinate, and he's unable to do so. Or Yeah. It was, <laughs> it was strange how she responded to Good Coop's bizarre behaviour. She had to sort of assimilate it as sort of him being funny, like this comedic act of, like, needing to go desperately, I think. Mm. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's interesting to see how quote-unquote normal people are dealing with 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 like a co-worker or a partner or however and everyone is trying to find all these particular ways to contextualize mm, his behavior it. and what he's yeah. doing everyone seems very keen to just compartmentalize it and go oh it must be because of this and help to a certain point yeah. but yeah i we can't have this crazy person in the middle of the thing. He must be joking. I'll mm. let him use this mm. toilet. Yeah, and I love Lynch's use of retention. In this, like, in this terrace, it's urinary retention, but there's all manner of other retentions going on as well. Well, it's a natural impulse that he's unable to express. 
and you know we had a tear earlier and then we've got the urine later on we've got to return to the uh hitman who in rancho rosa yeah. as well mm. so there's a the whole storyline that we open on is developed further by two people two groups of people showing an interest in dougie's parked car yeah i'm feeling really sorry for that poor kid across the road who ended up accidentally watching two dudes getting blown into kebabs in front of him yeah that was pretty he's already having a pretty cool. tough life yeah i i'm Found it hard mm. contextualising that scene altogether as to why it was there. Yeah, that was, that was a strange moment. Yeah, I thought, I'm reminded a lot of the Chalfonts. Okay. No, I don't know whether there is any connection, but we also do you remember the Chalfonts slash Tremonts in the first. The old seasons? lady mm. and the creepy little yeah. boy. Yeah. yeah. So they were neighbours of Harold. They were also potential. Of course. Yeah. yeah. And I think that, at what lake was it? Silver Lake or something? Um, Pearl Lake. Pearl Lake. Yeah, there was. But then they later they moved to um, to Twin Peaks and they mm. were on the Meals and Wheels rounds as well. And so I think there's an interesting use of drugs here because because there's you know, drugs allow you to access another you know level of consciousness in a way. And this is a sort of, a sort of very bad or like errant use of of drugs to access a consciousness. So it's basically there is a sense of enslavement here, which I think Mrs. Tremont was able to like you know she was she appears in the, the room above the convenience store in Firewalk with me. She also you know, gives Laura the picture. So there's a enable there's enabling another gateway to another level of consciousness or to access the lodge. Yeah, the things we ha- we have already seen in the first two parts similar characters to the convenience store people ones with the weird face yes. mm-hmm. in that cabin or wherever it was that Doppelcoop went to mm-hmm. these people in the house across the road just seemed very normal human just sort of you know suffering economically or drug addicts or something yeah. I'm just I have no idea what they're in the story for well I think neighbours play or people who live adjacent play an interesting role yeah. in, the, in, in Twin Peaks when that boy is looking out the window at the burning car and like the music comes up for about 15 seconds which I think might be the other new piece of Battle of music, mm. even though it's orchestral. So I was thinking, what's going on here? It's, it sounded like it was building just something ominous, and it was just this boy looking out the window at the burning car. Yeah, but it was such a beautiful reflection, the face, the blinds. It was, yeah, it was a gorgeously composed shot, even though it was horrific, of course. Yeah, the, the, the one thing I kept thinking about with that scene that ended up resonating for me was the fact that the Rancho Rosa estate is mostly abandoned. Like, when you see those shots up and down the streets, there's just seas of for sale signs outside houses, mm. and it seems like the house with the boy and his mother in it is one of the few actually occupied houses in the estate. It's a kind of a little depressing comment on the failed dream of mm. American suburbs. Why, which, and why does it have the same initials as the diner? That's yeah. the question. Why is it the double R? Yeah, Rancho Rosa. Red Room? Red Red Room. Oh. Red, red, that's know, that's, that's a bizarre is. coincidence. Well, I don't think... It's I don't think they're coincidences. <laughs> the double R diner was thought of before the Red Room. Mm, mm-hmm, and the yeah. red room thing was just because Lynch touched a hot car or something. <laughs> That's right. Yes. And the image popped into his head. But it seems to have has the same initials as the double R diner in this housing estate. Yeah, it's really really curious, and it's also unusual for Lynch to use children because he often uses women or you know as victims or as innocent people in caught up in horrible situations. It's quite unusual for him to, to use kids. I mean, they do exist, you know, in in his mm. film history, but. But it's it's unusual. There aren't very many children in the world of Twin mm. Peaks. No, yeah, and true. and they tend to be slightly slightly uncanny when yeah. they show up and whereas this is just this is just clearly a little boy who's adjacent to a lot of really horrifying stuff yes yeah definitely um and interestingly uh adrian martin who's a film critic who we both know pointed out that um the uh, kid with the big with the big red one on his chest is a homage to either samuel fuller's the big red one in both works bodies do get blown apart or rivets out one both of these are in parts and long take your pick um can i pick neither 
Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. I, I, I think that's too, that's too sophisticated a film reference, maybe. I don't know. It's interesting that people are getting this sort of thing out of There were film noir references in the original Twin Peaks, so maybe not. Mm. He did grow up watching a lot of those sorts of movies. Yes, it's definitely possible. Thank you, Eloise, for drawing our attention to that, for what it's worth. So it's weird to see a child, I think, in that much danger because he's so close to that, which I thought was a tracker with the red light, but it turns out to be an ignition-related bomb that kills a bunch of carjackers. Yeah, so I'm, I'm curious to see how he's going to figure into the story. Mm. Or yeah. whether they even come back to them again beyond this point. I wouldn't have thought so, but <laughs> the, the thing with the kid looking out the window and the music mm. seems to be leading somewhere, and I don't know where. Well, in the following scene, we stay in Vegas and we move to the Silver Mustang Casino's ca- control room. <laughs> what colour Mustang? That'd be silver. Ah. Yeah. The uh, hotel manager is told they're on their way and then we get a scene of <laughs> some pretty extreme physical violence by some hotel... I guess they're... I don't know what they call them. Security firm? Minders? People who are ahead of the casino chain who don't who are upset Cooper managed to get that much money out of them through the jackpots? Yeah, are we ever told who they are exactly? I just thought, you know, owners. Enforcers, yeah. that sort of thing. Bad dudes. It was interesting to have that such lynching shot, which is, I think is on my, maybe my that's lynching pick for this particular part, of the cutting to the three women dressed yeah. as, as showgirls. Remind me of a bit in Blue Velvet, where Carl McLaughlin is getting beaten up by Dennis Hopper and the girls are sort of standing in the background, just slowly dancing the music, just watching as... This violence happens. Mm, mm. So that was my that's lynching as well. Yeah. Now this to me like captured Vegas in one particular scene. It's like it's ugly, it's violent, it's lit darkly. There's beautiful women, but they're they're in this horrible place because there's so pretty much everything has been bad that's happened in Vegas so far. And Good Cooper is trying to kind of struggling against these various forces, mainly social forces that are making him take on the role of um, as an insurance agent. So I wouldn't be surprised if at some point this insurance company he's working for is drawn in somehow to this casino scenario. I, I did, of course, have a big laugh at the fact that, of course, Dougie worked in fucking insurance. <laughs> of course he did. <laughs> he wasn't a creepers away enough already. <laughs> I, well, I mean, I, I knew it was something, some sort of creepy thing, but I thought he worked for real estate. I thought it was like yeah. one, a house he was trying to sell where he first... I, re- yeah, I reckon same. it would have been a place that they foreclosed on. Um, Good call. Or some kind of property that ended up becoming part of a claim. Oh, right. So they're actually the most loathed people in America. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. And the final scene in Vegas, I think, is the car wash where Jade is given the hotel room key. Yes. Yes. I enjoyed seeing her again. Well, I'm confused as to... I did not realise you could just throw a hotel room key into a post box. So, literally, and don't ask me how I know this, but you can essentially put anything in a letterbox that has... And if it has a clear address on it, the postal service is obliged to deliver it. So will the hotel pay on collection? Is that how it works? Basically, yeah. Is that only in America? Because I can't see Australia I think it's most. That. I think it's most places, to be honest. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Interesting. Well, it was nice. It was good to see Jade again. Mm. Um, I'm hoping that she gets developed a little more. And also nice to see something connecting it, all this stuff, to Twin Peaks yes. and that yeah. side of the series. Yes, which is very important. So the first thing we see of Twin Peaks is us getting introduced to Stephen, who yes. is played by Caleb Landry-Jones, a.k.a. the lacrosse-playing nightmare brother from Get Out. Yeah, I was surprised to see him. The creepy moustache brother. Yes, Although, extremely in, so. In, in both projects. So he must walk around like that. I feel like he's hired for his creepier moustache. Yeah. You know, you've got a niche, exploit it. Yeah. Well, I was more blown away that we got introduced to Mike in that scene. Yeah. Like Gary Hirschberg is 
Mike and Bobby Mike, yeah, as mm. as like seemingly a dude in an office with a straight job. I was mm. like, congrats. Like, I think you mentioned last time how much you like seeing oh, ne'er-do-well teenagers It's just great well. when kids just straighten themselves out, you know? <laughs> and have a deer that, head that on was, their that, wall. That was the perfect version of that scene because he's actually lecturing young <laughs> Basically, he's, he's, you know, a version of himself. <laughs> it was gorgeous. And the, and the deer head on the wall and the, the duck statue by the door. Mm. <laughs> it's like that couldn't happen anywhere else. Um, I was blown away by seeing the main street of North Bend, which is actually like a real-life location. They didn't dress it up at all. We never saw it in the first two seasons. It's just basically the stretch of road right near Tweed's Cafe, which is the real-life Double R Diner. It's so nice seeing the real town. After re-watching the original series recently, you see how much of it is just filmed in Los Angeles studios. Yes. But you see so little of the actual place apart oh. from the pilot. And then we head back to the sheriff's office and mm-hmm. we meet Sheriff Truman 2's wife, Doris. Yes. She has no time for any of this that is going on, by the way. She's been staring at buckets. She has been staring at buckets. We're going to get that black mould, Frank. <laughs> Which I feel like is just, well, that, that that's just a nice little metaphor yeah. for all of us, yeah, isn't yeah. it? Are we all just staring too hard yeah, at buckets? Yeah, a glass box. Mm. I have another meta theory about that scene, is I think the wife, the nagging wife, is Showtime, who are complaining <laughs> about the series being too messy and <laughs> too expensive, and Lynch is, Lynch is Sheriff Truman just calmly saying, or buy a bigger bucket, give me more money. <laughs> and she's just balking at that. <laughs> That's brilliant. I don't know if that was intended, but I don't know what else that scene's doing. Oh, man. Nobody does impassive like Robert Forster. That face was just, like, <laughs> so loving. Yeah, he was, he was great in the Wally scene as well. Yeah, exactly. Nodding patiently, yep. <laughs> um, I loved it, yeah. And it was great to see um, Candy Clark again after all these years of not seeing her. Um, yeah, that was just a beautiful little moment of real... Of, Twin, actual Twin Peaks. Yes, exactly. I I very much enjoyed the the return of slightly soap opera acting. Yes, I want some more of that. I can't wait until they're all sort of back in Twin Peaks itself. Mm. And actually, I think you can possibly say there's something similar about a meta narrative going on in the other scene we get in the sheriff's department, which is Hawk and Andy looking through the files. Oh God! And then Andy talking about I don't I can't find any Indians. Oh, just just another employment of Michael Horse's amazing Can You Believe These White People face. Yeah, it's oh. a recurring thing. In fact, there's somebody's going to make a meme where they just string them all together. And please, please, please send minutes. it to me. Please send it to me. Of course, right, right in. I'll let you know where you can send it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it was nice to see um, that the Double R Diner has expanded into delivery now because we had RR to go, exclamation mark, yes. on the donut boxes. On the donut boxes and also on top of the diner itself when you see the exterior shop. Yeah, yeah, 2017. So, yes. So, if we're talking about the diner, can we talk about Norma? Yes, we can. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> so we stay in Twin Peaks and we get a shot of the Double R, which we haven't seen from an angle we haven't seen before. And then we get go inside and there's Norma. But we, do, we get the, the POV. We've never seen a POV inside the diner before. Um, and it's from the back, Norma is watching and overhearing the very quiet conversation between Shelley and Becky, Amanda Seyfried, Becky being Shelley's daughter who's asking for money. And this immediately makes us think of the final scene of part two where, where Shelley's sitting in the diner talking about how her daughter is in a, with a bad dude. Mm-hmm. Who we've already met. Who we've already met. We agree. Dodgy mustache, and we agree. And if Mark's, um, call, if Mike is calling him, saying "What an asshole!" as he walks out, then then you know that's that's indicative of something. Yes. Um, well, let's yeah, talk about Norma. Yes, let's talk about Norma and Shelley and cycles in Twin Peaks because I think cycles cycles are something that I think the show has always been very 
interested in and particularly cycles of abuse and violence and bad relationships and it's obvious that Shelley's daughter Becky is caught in the same bad relationship cycle that her mother was when she was young and it's I don't know, I feel like it's it's some kind of commentary on how, as a culture, we don't discourage young women from throwing themselves away on cool young men who are dangerous and generally also turn out to be not only dangerous but also very weak men. Like, we, we make it desirable. We make dudes with fast cars and motorcycles and heedless care for things, you know, romantic and sexy. And there's that amazing conversation between Norma and Shelley after Becky has left where Norma says, if you don't help her now, it's going to get a lot harder to help her later. And Shelley replies, we both know that too, don't we? Mm -hmm. And that just killed me. Yeah. Why hasn't every woman in this town figured out lesbianism seriously? The men are awful. <laughs> so was that implied by that last shot with them hugging each other? Oh, I they... bloody well hope so. <laughs> Me too. They're the only two who deserve each other, honestly. Wow. <laughs> Apart from Bobby and Mike in the original series. Oh, mm, so true. true. true well, fact. actually, interesting. Do you think Shirley got tired of Bobby when Bobby went straight and became a lawman? Oh, well, here's also the question, because, of course, Becky's surname is kind of ambiguous in the end credits, because it appears that she and Stephen actually married because they have the same last name. So we don't still actually know who Becky's father is. Mm. Yeah. Is it Bobby? Is it somebody else? That reminds me of another character in this episode. <laughs> yes. We will talk about him later. We will. <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot of theories about him. Yeah. And I've got to say, it was a vicarious thrill to see the Double R Diner, the real life Double R Diner, as it was in the pilot, but actually now modified to look like it did in the pilot mm. with super low stools that enable you to have headshots over the top of customers or people behind the counter. It was The whole place has been customised. Uh, I can't help but think of the Twin Peaks Festival and how I spent half the time sitting in there eating salad. Oh, bless. Because there were so, so many donuts and cherry pie. Um, but anyway. <laughs> yes. Can I also talk about how I'm very happy about the masterful casting that is Amanda Seyfried yes. as Mansion Amick's daughter? I think, mm. like, their, their ages are probably a lot closer than I think, you know, the, the uh, show is suggesting. But I feel like just in terms of them mirroring each other in terms of their physical beauty and features and things like that, I think it's an extraordinarily good yes. piece of casting. Yes. And particularly in that amazing scene where... Uh, Stephen puts his feet on the accelerator and his ridiculous car mm. starts going and Amanda's head throws back and yeah. the amazing Paris Sisters song comes on to play and her eyes are wide and she's fucked up on drugs and love and you just sit there just going... This is glorious. This yeah. this entire otherwise extremely frustrating episode has been worth it for this one sequence, you know. And, and yeah, I also really do love that particular use of that particular Paris Sisters song because it gives you this air of how things like fast cars and music and, of course, drugs can convince you that you are in love with an idiot of a man <laughs> and keep you much longer in situations that are only going to get worse and how it's those moments of high that music often teaches you is how love should feel like. It mm. should always feel like mm. a constant high that ends up putting you in situations yeah. that aren't good for you. It is a very nice car. No, it's a rubbish car. It's, it's a very, you know... It, it, <laughs> what kind of car is it, Andy? I, I think it's a Mustang. 
Oh. I'm not sure, but it's very beautiful. The song is very good, and that cocaine is probably extremely high quality. Because it if, 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 well, if it's a Chinese drug, it's a Hollywood production. Okay. They supply the best for their actors. Or it could have come straight from those drug lines from Canada. And as yeah. we all know from Lynchian business, Canada is a constant den of high of scummiest villainy. Uh, only French Canadians, though. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was an extremely striking shot, and it seems like from most other uh, recaps I've read online, people single that shot out as being one of the, the big takeaway shots from this from, from the, the return so far. I want to marry it because it did feel like it was going forever, and her face was just so it reminded it was so evocative of Laura. Mm. In, oh, okay. It really, yes. Like particularly with, towards the end of Firewalk with Me, with mm. this, this expression of bliss on her face. Yeah, at yeah. The end, she's really blasted with light in Firewalk with mm. Me. Mm. Yeah, I thought. Yeah, I thought it was a beautiful marriage of reminding you of Shelley and also reminding you of Laura on top of that. Yeah, and what is uh, yeah, and brilliant piece of casting for that shot alone. Like, mm-hmm. What a great face she's got for that. Yeah, so things um, in Twin Peaks are much as they were. Ah, <laughs> except when we find out what's been going on with Dr. Jacoby and his shovels. <laughs> it's true, um, but just before that, one more thing: the thro- the mention of Toad as mm. working in the kitchen of the Double R Diner. Genius for those of us who have paid obsessive attention because he's never had a line, but he's appeared in a bunch of episodes from the first two seasons, usually as an overweight man. Um, playing chess or eating. Uh, or in one, in one particular scene, he goes into the kitchen and Norma has to shoo him out because he's eating directly from the stove. Oh, he's that character. Yeah, but he's got a different... He's played by a different actor in this time around. Um, and isn't that the actor the episode was dedicated to because yes, he died? exactly. So I'm confused <laughs> as to what exactly that all means. But it was so nice to hear, have Toad mentioned again. It sounded like it was a nice homage to something yes. that Lynch probably knows all about and yeah. the rest of us don't. Yes, but anyway, on to Dr. Jacoby. Oh, my God. Uh, to be honest, I'm surprised more people in Twin Peaks haven't become mad libertarian hippie survivalists <laughs> with a web series. <laughs> it seems like the sort of place where this sort of thing would thrive. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it really does. And I'm pretty sure it's safe to say that nobody saw this coming from Absolutely the, from the, the shovels. This, this was one of the earliest scenes in the entire in the first episode. Yes, one mm. of the first things we had no idea what was going on in Twin Peaks, and we see Doctor Jacoby getting shovels delivered, and then a slow fade to black, as if to suggest, oh yeah, this is important. Mm. Yeah, and then he's <laughs> spraying so gold, and now he's shoveling shit. And now it's Doctor Amp, <laughs> and, <laughs> and of course he's hocking golden shit digging shovels. Mm. Nadine seemed to be listen- well, watching him while drinking some mm. sort of, I think it was a coconut-based drink, I'm not entirely sure. And, and, and the, Jerry and was Jerry. definitely watching him by some kind of yeah. tablet or a something tablet. like that. But watching it live, yeah. which yeah. is bizarre. Do you reckon Jerry and Nadine are his only listeners? Oh, that's possible. But yes, anyway, I was glad to see a glimpse of Nadine and that she appears content. Yes. I wish only happiness for Nadine. She oh. went through a lot of unnecessary yeah. shit. Yeah. Yeah. I think of all the original characters who've come back looking much older, she's like looks the best out of anyone. Yeah, she looks yeah, really yeah. glamorous in a way she didn't in the original. Which is mm. quite strange. But she also looks really happy and radiant and in love with Dr. Jacoby. <laughs> so <laughs> Which I don't know how I feel about that. Yeah. I also think that we should all be questioning the fact that Dr. Jacoby was such a trusted professional in the original series, considering this is clearly what was, you mm. know, bubbling under the surface the entire time. Well, I think yeah. it's a nice commentary on um, how you know the Woodstock generation gradually turn into these ranting libertarians, denying the same liberties that they got themselves. 
Yeah, there's there's been quite a lot of commentary since this episode <laughs> came out already about this being like a, a pretty good summation of the current worldwide political situation we find ourselves yeah. in. You yeah, know, we're we're gonna hock you some golden shit digging shovels so you can dig yourself out of the crap. Yeah, for twenty nine ninety five, it's a very very good price for a golden <laughs> shovel. I'm, I'm golden shovels, there have two layers of gold on. Oh them. man, so, yeah. See, so, like, come on, you could put an extra zero on that, and that would still be a competitive price for a solid gold shovel. I loved his line where are the cops when we need them <laughs> just in, in relation to nothing just general worldwide discontent yeah. where are the cops when we need them and we know where the cops are they're investigating this murder or they're looking through boxes in between pictures yeah and he's on Whitetail Peak the, the mountain that's where he says his location is his caravan oh of course yeah 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 which is a nice touch Mm. Yes, so, and our last sequence in Twin Peaks is back at the Roadhouse, but this is no ordinary band play fade to credits scene. It's a good band for once. Yes. Oh, well, I have no comment on that. But we have someone new to meet, and it turns out something that you don't realise until you read the end credits it's a new horn, mm. and he's an asshole <laughs> in the family tradition. He certainly is. I don't know, he's pretty bad at uh, smoking under the non-smoking sign. Yeah, that is... And then he suddenly turns out to be evil. Yeah. And then he turns out to be a horn. Oh, yeah. what a so. surprise. <laughs> Zero surprises. Yeah, and he, he seems to be involved in dr- drug dealing as well, from what I gather, because he hands a Marlboro box with some cash in it to this very sarcastic cop we saw in part three. Mm-hmm. Oh, is that yes. who he was? No, no surprises. He turned out to be a bad egg. No! No, anyone who ridicules Andy like that mm. is in trouble. So everybody online has been going, oh my God, this is Dennis Hopper, this is Frank Booth, this is Bobby Peru, this is like a particular archetype that Lynch has dealt with before. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and he's finally visited upon the town of Twin Peaks. This, this episode's full of sort of hoodlums and delinquents, actually, because they're in Las Vegas outside the house, in the housing estate as well. Mm-hmm. Two carloads of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, just going back to the band, this is a band called Trouble, featuring the sound designer Dean Hurley on drums and David Lynch's son on guitar. Oh. Oh. Riley Lynch. Yeah, and cra- cracking tune. I think I think it's my favourite tune that I've heard so far. Yeah. It, well, take me back to sort of the roadhouse of the original series where it's sort of a bit dark and smoky and dangerous. Yeah, and it's instrumental, so you can have conversations over the music mm. instead of it just being the sole focus of attention. Yeah, um, this is also um, Eamon Farron, Australia's, the Australian actor, who's playing the role of Richard Horn. Um, do you guys think this Richard is the Richard of the very, very opening in the very first part where we talked about Richard and Linda? Who's talking about Richard? The giant. That was the giant talking oh, about Richard, Richard and Linda. Richard Yes. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Who but there knows? Been, um, astute people who are reading the credits, which I think you've never had to do more. Oh, you have to do it. You have to read the credits now. They're much as part of the show as but the But they're the really hard to follow because he has them in alphabetical order. Yeah. Mm. And but, sometimes certain characters don't have their names said, so you kind of have to yeah. do a bit of investigative, yeah. okay, so who's that referencing to? And and they do include characters who weren't in this episode but were in previous episodes. This is true. <laughs> or, or actors who appeared in flashbacks from the original series. Yeah. So, really, the mm. question at hand here is, from whose poisonous horny loins <laughs> did this individual spring forth from? <laughs> well, well uh, do you, what are your theories on this, Diamond? Well, I think definitely Audrey... But then the other thing I noticed on the internet today, which I shouldn't have been looking at, because this leads you down some dark alleyways, is that what if the father was Doppelkoop? One of the first things he did after returning at the end of the original series, he found Audrey, maybe seduced her, 
and she had a half evil baby who turned out to be Richard. Oh, I've seen this theory too, and I hate it. Mm. Yeah. I, I believe it though. Really? I hate it. I like the idea of it being Jerry's grandson. Yes, I must admit, because, yeah, when you kind of start thinking, yeah, that's the thing. My, my immediate thing was Jerry, because I was like, who's who's going to abdicate mm. responsibility for raising a decent adult more than Jerry Horn? Ben, at least from his, his reintroduction in the first episode, seems to have tried yeah. at least to stay to the, the, the straight and narrow. Which oh, yes, PDCT. Yes, which he which he f- was first trying on towards the end of, of the second season. I could see Ben accidentally, inverted mm. commas, um, <laughs> having another child and possibly messing them up through good intentions. Mm. Audrey is kind of the one that I'm least leaning towards, but do look at the way that Richard holds his cigarettes. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, I also well, my first thought was like Audrey's, but use like Audrey used you know her feminine I don't know what to say feminine charms that's really mean but but basically she managed to exert a lot of control through skills that she had. But, the, but you know she I was. Think, I think you called them feminine charms when she did that cherry. Well, the cherry thing, thing. There's the way that she could like you know she won over Cooper straight away. She has quite a lot of power. And this is a total, this is a similar amount of power, just asserted in a very different, very ugly way. Mm. Mm. So there is okay. a parallel to be drawn, I think, there, which yeah. I don't want to draw. He has, a, he, has a sexual, he has a sexual magnetism that Audrey yeah. had. Yeah. yeah. If if not, you can if you, if you don't want to draw those lines, and I totally understand not wanting to because it's icky. Um, mm. But you can say that the Horns as a family were always wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> they were good, upstanding citizens. <laughs> there was never, never any scandal at all. Um, they were always a family who never found it difficult drawing people towards them. They never had difficulty in subtly and sometimes not so subtly convincing people to do what they wanted. Yes. And perhaps this this new horn, Richard, is just the, the worst extent of that. The horns, you know, are one of the oldest families of Twin Peaks. They founded it along with the Martells and they've got a long history of doing exactly that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and manipulation is a key part of their uh, business dealings. Sometimes blood will out. Mm. Yeah. Yep. Also, I, I keep forgetting that Audrey, the last time we saw her, she was in a bank that blew up. Yes. Mm. So where is she now? What <laughs> happened to her? This is the question I keep asking. Uh, will she be and gonna, I'm very yeah. angry. I mean, I'm sure Pete Martell was a goner. Yeah, he Poor was. Pete. Well, in the secret history, it does tell you the fate of the people in the bank vault. Okay. Um, and mm. Audrey was the only survivor. Oh. Mm. So she will turn up. And I then think. she bumped into Doppelkoop, who is suddenly putting the moves on her. Yeah. No. Or did she. I don't want this. I'm still Reject. thinking that we're going to see her being the boss of the, of the Great Northern and actually Ben being an ornamental figurehead in the. In that the, would be uh, nice. I was always very big on the idea of Audrey Horn running mm. shit. Yeah, same. Because she was always very good at it. Well, I think you mentioned that the, the theory of the, her possibly being the anonymous billionaire. Was that you? No, that was no. me very early Sorry. on before we figured out that it was probably actually Doppelcoop. Right, okay. Oh, really? I have a theory that it's Philip Jeffries. This is something else I have in my notes that I came up with in this episode because I remember the glass box in New York and what its purpose might have been in that maybe it was set up to trap good Cooper if he ever escaped from the Black Lodge he would fall into this thing which he did briefly and then he fell out again maybe Philip Jeffrey set up this trap and he's done that at various places because he's mm. some sort of mastermind he's done all this and then there's so much stuff in those first two parts that 
we've almost forgotten about. It's like there's the demon, that monster thing that came mm -hmm. out of a trap after Coop. Maybe that was sent by the Lodge to get him back. Maybe mm -hmm. it's trying to pursue good Coop and bad Coop and try and kill one of them. Yeah. Like, where is that monster now? It ate the kids on the couch and then... Yeah. Vermoosed. Well, they lobotomize them, it seems, from those photos that they, they were looking at later. I feel like lobotomize is a polite term for eating a cavity out of your head. Yeah. yeah. Well. well, there isn't a theory that the eyeless woman flung through space and turned up in the, in the box because the, the figure it looks kind of feminine. You can't see the face. It's quite indistinct. But then it may have been like charged by Philip Jeffries or anonymous billionaire with killing whoever turned up, and it was meant to kill Coop and didn't and missed. Oh, yeah. And Coop got got away, and the first people that saw were that couple. So it's I'm still so unsure whether that was summoned by some sex magic ritual that they were accidentally doing in the presence of the box, or if it was sent by Philip Jeffries. Well, yeah, why I made sense of that is I remembered something in. I think the very last episode of the original series, or was close to that, they say for, for ways to open that gate to the lodge is either with fear or love. Yes, fear and love open the Them door. on the couch is definitely love. Oh, oh, that's great, yes, cool. But then the other theory is it came out after Coop and it was looking for him, so mm. maybe that's why. Possibly. Yes. Uh, speaking of weird things happening over on the east coast of the United States, um, the Pentagon. I think, yes. is that the next thing? Yes. Yes, that comes straight after. And we're with Tammy and, oh, Tammy, I've also spent a lot of time gazing at photos of Carl McLaughlin. It's okay. It's <laughs> totally normal. Well, it's a fascinating picture she's chosen to look at because it seems like he's in the red room in the photo. I'm unsure of where it came from and how she could get that. Yeah, photos aren't normally taken with red backgrounds like that. So <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's a very fetching photo, but quite of its derivation, I'm unsure. But she um, notices, well, at least I took from the scene that she notices the similarity between the fingerprints and then notices that the doppelgrips are a mirror of Dougie's. Mm. Wow. I was trying to figure out what she was staring at and I had no idea. Mm. So I, that's what it was. I'm pretty sure. Mm. Yes. And then, of course, we should, of course, talk about the two doppelgrip scenes. So the first one we see is reasonably early on. Someone is coming with food. Mm, yes, right. <laughs> and now food is coming. And then make the beautiful lynching um, shot of a person walking all the way down the corridor. Yes, he all the way down shots. the corridor. There's a very large bowl of fruit salad on that tray. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, and I think this is a sequence where obviously like the big thing that I think freaked everyone out was Doppelcoop looking into the mirror and there was Frank Silver's face imposed mm. over Carl McLaughlin's face and he says, you're still with me, that's good. And mm. I think that's the bit where everyone probably internally flipped out quite a yeah. bit because it's an indication that yes Bob has always been with Doppelcoop and Doppelcoop has obviously always been the inverse of Coop but it's still Coop. Bob is there and he's an influence but what Doppelcoop is now is the result of what would have happened if essentially Coop gave over to all of his worst impulses and made all of the wrong choices and he's a wrong thing because he decided to do all of these things with Bob's guiding hand mm. sort of thing and it's that uncomfortable thing of in the original series you know it, with with Leyland and his relationship with Bob sometimes I'm very uncomfortable thinking about the way that that was handled because it kind of in a lot of ways suggested that Leyland was a, was an innocent victim sort of thing and was taken over by this nefarious being that forced him to do things. But oh, I yeah. kind of feel <clears throat> with this 
revelation, it kind of ends up backtracking over that and saying, well, Bob is after fear and Bob is frightening and Bob can suggest things and Bob can push you to certain edges, but you have to make those decisions to fall over yourself. Mm, And then perhaps maybe Bob takes over and does things that you're not aware of, but it's your decisions to follow your worst impulses Mm. that lets Bob take over you. And so, yeah, I think that gives us all a lot of... um, interesting and uncomfortable things to ponder mm. yeah yes this this series has no shortage of those things i've also liked the fact that the guard was called warren because warren i think this is one of many nods to people that the frost and lynch are friends with because warren frost played dr haywood he did and yes. passed away recently um, but later on we see uh colonel davis who i'm pretty sure is a nod to don davis who played major briggs mm-hmm. so there's all these little nods here and there i think to People. But um, also in this scene, we get our only glimpse of the Red Room in this episode with, with the flashback to episode 29 where we see the, witness the birth of Doppelcoop with mm. Bob. Um, and then, of course, the, the crazy second scene with Doppelcoop mm. shows that he is a dangerous nightmare <laughs> even while imprisoned. <laughs> we didn't know he actually had those powers to actually... Or telekinetic powers to, to mm. do that stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's, it it seems like that even though he's obviously extremely recalcitrant to go back to the Black Lodge, that he definitely possesses quite a few of its mm. powers mm. that possibly even Bob did not have access to, because yeah. he seems like a far more of a powerful figure than anyone else that Bob has ended up possessing mm. before and maybe that's because he originated in the black lodge mm. or, or who knows may- i'm spitballing yeah. i'm spitballing mm. or maybe, maybe philip jeffries has taught him things yeah the first four parts are sort of setting up doppelcoop as someone with quite a few earthly limitations he's he gets arrested he's just driving around sleeping in motels and this is the first time we see he actually has terrifying powers and is a hugely scary moment. When yeah, that yeah. And he's finding modern America to be a kind of Eden of, of Garmabosia, mm. I suppose. <laughs> and when he does get out of jail, which I'm sure he will, what he's going to get back to something to do with Matt, Matthew Lillard's secretary? Possibly, yes. Although I think he let himself get arrested in order to free Ray, because Ray is in Youngton prison as well, and Ray has a piece of information about the secretary oh, that he's yeah. got to get. So I think that's what was happening when he set off all the alarm bells. I think he allowed Ray to be freed as well as c- covering up anything that he was actually saying because of the, the clamour and the din that was happening. Mm. Uh, but also I love the way that he disconcerted um, Warden Murphy by asking by talking about Mr. Strawberry just before that happened. That's a great Lynchian name. Yeah. <laughs> like Mr. Reindeer in Wild at Heart. <laughs> Does anyone have any idea what they think Mr. Strawberry is? No. I wouldn't be surprised if it was just a throwaway yeah. quirkism. But it really unsettled me. We learned enough just from his reaction, I think. It's like maybe he's someone that the warden may disappear or something. Mm. And I was thinking it might be a teddy bear or a pet or something. Something very personal to the warden. <laughs> <laughs> that would be like, what? <laughs> what is it with wardens and their teddy bears? <laughs> well, I think it was interesting that the one thing he says into the phone, the cow jumped over the moon, is like pretty much like the most meaningless thing. It just had to be a signal, I think. 
or maybe it was some sort of code. There's, there's actually another scene I think we forgot about the buckhorn. Oh, oh yeah, with, with Constance and yes. the and the body. Yeah, is that right? Yes, That's right. yes, yeah. and there's something yeah. interesting in its stomach. Yeah, yes. but first of all, there's some cracking gags. Oh, she got some black comedy. I really love Constance. Singers, it's yeah. great. <laughs> yeah, she has a sort of Shelley Duvall quality. Oh, good call. The shining. Yeah. Constance is played by Jane Adams, who turned up in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and Todd Swanson's Happiness. Yeah. There we go. And she manages to find some very uh, intriguing things. This guy hasn't eaten much, but look what I found. And she pulls out a ring. It looks quite fam- quite familiar at first. It reminded me of Cooper's ring. But then there was an engraving on it from Janie, which identifies it as belonging to Dougie. So we, we've got another little, a beautiful little connection here now between Dougie's life in Las Vegas, Doppelcoop, and the Red Room. And this murder in Buckhorn. I feel, I feel like this is a really unexpectedly ugly way for Lynch to have dealt with Major Briggs. To see him beheaded and and laid out like that, to see his like naked body on a bed. To... Is it that obvious though? I don't know if it's that obvious. Well, like um... because if you go back to the scene with Colonel Davis and he says his, sixteen times these prints, have turned up. these prints have turned up, and it's clearly not been him any of those previous sixteen times. What's to say that this is what's happened this time? Well, first of all, we got the hint that it was because when the police in Buckhorn were trying to uh, work out the identity of the body, um, searching for those prints triggered off high-level FBI-related or or defence force-related. And so immediately that makes you think, well, the only other person we've seen with this level of clearance is Briggs. Hmm. And then the body was kind of a similar shape to him, I guess. But I was like, well, it can't be. You know, it's 25 years ago. So has he been wheeled out from the Red Room every time that Doppelcoop has done something evil to put his fingerprints around the place? To, like, leave some sort of trace? Is it going to spell something on a map of America the way that Wyndham Earl's gifts to the various police departments did? I don't know. I think we've just plain not been given enough information Mm. about this to really really try and piece together what's going on. Mm. I'm going to wait and see. Okay. Why is he eating wedding rings? <laughs> um, so the upshot of this is that we get... Now we have the Defence Department are now going to be descending upon Buckthorn as well. So there's going to be like... A, a, I think there's going to be getting a bit peaksy over there pretty soon. Then we finish we could, yeah, off yeah. on... Good Cooper and the statue. Another Good Coop and the statue. And like just to circle back to what I said earlier that I'm sure makes people very angry <laughs> that mm-hmm. I said that I don't think Coop's going to be snapping out of this sort of thing anytime soon or at least it's going to be a very very slow process because honestly like the level of sadness that really hit me with good coop storyline in this episode it's so much this is proper pathos this is a proper story of someone who is fundamentally broken and trying to piece those things back together and i really feel like if something was to happen which would just make him return back to to be at least a similar version of what he used to be. I feel like that would really ruin what's been built up here. But by the same time, the the frustration and the sadness of this situation, it's really hard to deal with. I mean, honestly, by, by the end when we have Coop staring at the cowboy statue just <laughs> gently stroking the shoes overlaid with starring Carl McLaughlin. <laughs> That's honestly one of the saddest things I've ever seen in my life and I am possibly dead inside now. It's it's, it's beautiful that that whole his story, you're right. It's like you do want it to continue. It feels like a movie of its own. Mm-hmm. You don't want it to be him to be snapping out of it, but it might be a slower sort of evolution. Like between mm-hmm. him as the alien innocent alien coop and proper agent cooper that's, he could be like he divide. could be half and half he'll yeah. be slowly regaining faculties mm. hopefully it happens like that 
Mm. Like he's an FBI agent, but he's still forgotten a lot of yeah. things. Because that's the thing. I think that version where this all happens very, very slowly is probably going to end up being the more satisfactory story version when the entire series is complete currently being in the middle of it i want to die mm-hmm. because it is just very frustrating and and emotionally overwhelming and watching this episode again was it was yeah it, it was painful purely because of the good coop storyline i don't know if this is like this for everyone else maybe i'm too sensitive or something but you just end up plunged in this really this really emotional state and like kudos to Carl mclaughlin who is just friggin doing home run after home run after home run with all of these various roles that he's got mm. going on in in this new new season. But it's killing me. You're killing mm. me, Kyle. You're killing <laughs> me by inches. Yeah. Yeah, I can't, I'm, I'm really con- confused as to how it's going to resolve. I mean, because... Well, well, you think it's not going to resolve, right? Did you, you say that earlier? Well, I, I, I think... I think any resolution we're going to come to, I think is probably going to end up disappointing a lot mm. of people because I think a lot of people just want the old coop back. Yeah. And honestly like I don't know, I I would like to say I would believe that Lynch is leading us there and that that's what we'll eventually get and that'll be a lovely beautiful gift to us all, but I don't trust that fucker. Mm. So Trust Mark Frost though. He's going to get him back to the town as Agent Cooper. It's just going to be a very strange torturous journey. Yeah, well this that was the one thing we were promised before this whole Twin Peaks the return began was that this is the story of Cooper's journey back to Twin Peaks. Mm. But I definitely get what you're saying. I don't feel it that intensely, but it's, it's, it's definitely the most heartfelt part. I feel too many part. things intensely. Like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a good show for that. It is a very good show for that. It is. I was setting up my TV to watch the finale of a show called Twin Peaks. It's Twin Peaks and it's very in. I panic and change the subject to the Twin Peaks reboot till she gets bored. I mean, she totally gave up on Twin Peaks. It's Jude David Lynch. Brilliant. (laughs) I have absolutely no idea what's going on. Um, So your That's Lynchian moment. My That's Lynchian moment is Tammy's look. I love her look. Her look is just amazing. She's got that beautiful long hair that's dark but kind of held back from her face. In the scene that we see her in where she is mulling photographs of Coop, she has this lovely black lace top on and she's just beautifully put together and just very contained, which is a very particular type of Lynchian woman. There's there's a lot of different types of Lynchian women and many of them are probo. <laughs> but uh, Tammy kind of embodies one that I always really enjoy, which is the really well put together woman who's quite intelligent sometimes keeps it under wraps so that she can kind of get a bit more out of people than maybe they're willing to give her mm. and she's a character that i'm really intrigued with and i would like a lot more same with her. i'm expecting a lot more from her mm. yeah um we already mentioned ours Most i have an, i have another that's oh, Lynch in, which is lynch's obsession with hoodlums in hot cars oh my god mm. yes 
I'm in Blue Velvet, Wild at Heart, Lost Highway, Mulholland Drive, Running Flamoth Road. We have two versions of that in the one scene. Mm. There's there's so much in this episode about cars, and I really recommend to people if you're reading recaps. My friend Emily L. Stevens is writing the recaps for the AV Club, and she has a really, really good rundown on what she thinks all of the cars mean in this episode. It's a great read. I read that this morning, actually. Yay! (laughs) I'm actually... Wasn't sure whether to bring it up earlier when you mentioned the scene of Dougie slash Coop looking at his son in the car. The AV club had this interesting reading of what that meant on a symbolic level. It reminded Coop of himself, this powerless soul trapped in a vehicle. Oh, yes, sort of the vehicle thing. Yes, yeah. because cause the beautiful metaphor that Emily gets to is that Coop is essentially, he's a vehicle or he's this body that's been put into the vehicle of Dougie's life and is just being trucked yeah. around yeah. it. And, that, and that's why he, the tear ran down his face. Oh, Leland, you've been a good vehicle. Yes, mm. exactly. Mm. Um, I also loved the fact that it was like a wooden car. It was like the most wooden car you could get. Like, it's not made of wood, of course, but it's partially wood. <laughs> but it has that, that, like, that, that wood overlay. Yeah, that's, it's the same thing. It's very 1950s, you Like know. the National Lampoon's National Vacation. Lampoon car, yeah. <laughs> and also in Breaking Bad, apparently. Oh. It's the same car that I think Skylar has, apparently. Yes, I, I have not watched Breaking Bad, but I have noticed a lot of parallels being thrown up by other writers talking about it. So yeah. perhaps someone who has seen Breaking Bad can get into that at some <laughs> stage. That's Cranston moment. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, any sound moments that stood out for you guys? The moment when Dr. Jacoby hits his golden shit-digging <laughs> shovel with a hammer. <laughs> cool, yes. <laughs> School's in. Anything stand out for you? Um, the sound when Doppelcoop made the prison alarms go apeshit. Mm. That was a great use. And yeah, like you, I watch it with headphones, and it's yeah, I, to I just it, like it launched me nearly a meter into the air when that happened. Mm. There was yeah. this Terrifying. really intense, like underneath the siren sounds. There was this pulsating, like brrr noise. Mm. Like I almost want to make the parallel of the Hans Zimmer brrm, <laughs> but it's yeah, it's that kind of intense, repeated sound underlaid yeah. beneath the sirens, and that was really arresting. Mm. It took me a few seconds to even realize it was meant to be sirens. I thought it was like a non diegetic terrifying noise yeah. to indicate mm. that the place was falling apart mm. but no it was just the alarm with some really creepy sound design yeah yeah that was my pick as well I thought that was remarkable particularly on the back of it being quite a quiet scene up until that mm. point mm. Um, and then Cooper's like, th- like hands flailing over the keypad on the telephone <laughs> and the fabulous <laughs> little tune he was making <laughs> it's great um colour my pick is the blackness of the car belonging to the hoodlums that met a, met a uh, sticky end. Because yeah. I've never seen a car that black and that clean before. It's very it was like, a, like a black hole. <laughs> particularly for hoodlums having yeah. a very clean car. Yeah, yeah, it was gorgeous. And then com- that particularly combined with the redness of the seats of the car in which Stephen and Becky wind up in. Yes. Mm. I loved the beautiful green teal mm. of Norma and Shelley's uniforms. Oh, yeah. Which have just always been this beautiful eye-popping thing that I've always enjoyed. Yeah. I love that Lynch made everybody wait four and a half hours to actually see this one piece of marketing that you see everywhere. These <laughs> <laughs> waitress uniforms. Not much stood out to me colour-wise except the g- all the green stuff in the good yeah. green chains. Yeah, we yeah. did have that. Was, that was unavoidable. That was everywhere. Yeah, yeah. it's becoming far, far more apparent. It it's is. cropping up for more it's often. taking over his life, in a way, this green. So, well, thank you for listening to the end of our discussion of Part 5 of Twin Peaks The Return. Please rate and review us on iTunes. That would be great. 
Um, if you're in Melbourne, Haley and I will be turning up at Acme's discussion, Twin Peaks, No One is Innocent, on June the 13th from 6pm. Yes, and we hope you already have tickets to that because it is unfortunately already sold out. Sorry, we didn't even have a chance to flog it to you. Yeah. But um, if you are in Melbourne this coming Friday, the 9th of June, and going to Continuum Con, there is also a Twin Peaks panel on that Friday evening, of which I and future podcast guest Bismuth Hoban will be chatting away on. Yes, definitely check that out. I was on a panel with them a couple of uh, years ago and it was a very, very good experience. And thank you very much, Donovan, for coming by and giving us all of your fabulous thoughts. Yes, um, It was great. Like all of our guests that we have on, you mentioned a lot of things that we hadn't even thought of. Yeah. So now mm. we will be mulling them for the rest of the uh, podcast season. Until yes. the next episode brings up more. <laughs> Ever more questions. <laughs> doing stand-up on the weekends.